I got a phone call from about 9.30 p.m. and my warehouse manager said, William, there's a fire at the warehouse. You know, pardon the vernacular, but sort of imagine pissing onto a bonfire. You, know, you don't do much to it. The fire engines had a massive hose, enormous quantity of water going on, but you know, it was a big fire. William Reeve is someone who doesn't appear regularly in interviews or blogs, so you could probably be forgiven for not knowing the name of this secret leader. But his CV is littered with household brands that we could probably say we've all used or been into at the very least. Zoopla, Dunelm, Love Film, Secret Escapes. He's single-handedly helped people move, furnish, relax and vacation. Not many can say that. Maybe your mum, if we remove the relax part. Known in the business as an entrepreneur, a serial angel investor, a founder, and a non-exec director, the internet-focused techie has successfully established two businesses from startups whose successful exit and helped find and establish several high-growth businesses. He's someone many would call attention from. The secret of success for this secret leader we're going to find out today. So, William, welcome to the Secret Leaders podcast. Thank you, Dan. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. As a fun fact, you'll probably remember a few years ago, we inter- we actually arranged an interview with you and uh, Alex Chesterman. Uh, how could I forget? Zoopla. How could you? Exactly. We didn't. But it was actually the start of was doing little things like that that were the start of us thinking we should probably get people onto a podcast. Yep. So here we are a few years later broadcasting some of the terrible secrets you shared that night. I Maybe. seem to remember they charged us for the uh, the room rental or the chairs for that. <laughs> and I didn't realise the definition of Chatham House Rules was it's then going to be published to hundreds of thousands of people online. After. Yeah, yeah. After. Many yeah. years later. There's Chatham House Rules here as well. Right, OK, yeah. yeah, yeah don't we worry. Are in a yeah, you can say whatever Chatham. you like. Yeah. It's all very safe here. Um, this is our container, Will. I can't see anybody listening, so it must be fine. Yeah, exactly. That's how it works. Right. Listen, we'd like to start with some quick fire questions, if we can, just to uh, you know, get you comfortable. So summer or winter? Both. I've caught him off guard. He's just definitely not sure. That wasn't quick either. Yeah, definitely wasn't. Right. iPhone or Android? Android. Uh, office or work from home? Office. Tube or taxi? Bike. Oh, good. Did come in with your helmet. I should have actually just recognised that, to be fair. Coffee or tea? Both. <laughs> Favourite biscuit? Both. All? All of them? Chocolate-covered digestives. You mean anything yeah. that greys make? The, the thin ones or the uh, thick ones? The thin ones, not the hobnobs. Yeah, mm. they're good, actually. Uh, random fact about yourself. Uh, half American. Oh, that is. Ooh. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, can you do an American accent for us, please? No, um, that's the wrong half. <laughs> what, bottom down. <laughs> yeah, <something like> that. <laughs> All right, well, this is not worth doing anything. This is a, a podcast. Um, best investment you've ever made? Best investment I've ever made, other than getting married, uh, I would say, from financial terms, it would be Secret Escapes. Yeah, okay. How early did you get in on that? I was one of the founders. Oh, well, okay. But I was an I was an investor founder rather than exec founder. Understood. Okay. Thank you for that. We're going to take you back to the early days, if you can remember your time at Oxford, um, having gained a degree in engineering, economics, and management. Correct. Correct. So, what was the plan at that point? So, deciding to start on that path, were you destined for entrepreneurship at that point, or what were you thinking? I remember vaguely getting asked questions as a teen, like, what are you going to do when you grow up, etc. And uh, never had a sensible answer for that. And my strategy had been somewhat around keeping options open and wanting to open doors for myself, but not, not having a view on which door. So Oxford was partly about that, you know, top university in the world and, and thought that probably opened doors. Was a bit of a hybrid character, wasn't quite good enough to do maths or physics, but probably felt engineering was a, 
decent second class alternative and found myself approaching the world a bit like that too. Wasn't was techie, but not quite techie enough to be a techie and was probably a good businessman, but I wasn't didn't quite see that at that point, but I definitely was interested in business and always assumed I'd go into work. Did you have your parents asking what you're going to do, you know, about getting a real job or anything like that? Or were they just supportive? Yeah, I mean, I don't probably don't speak to my mum enough. I didn't get too many critical quarters from home. My brother-in-law, who was a bit older than me, he looks at me as if I was... He was working in the city in finance, and he um, he thought I was ridiculously young to be setting up a business. What do you know? You, you know, just two years out of college. How can How you possibly set up a business? I was, I was 23, I think, when we set the business up. So when did you exit that? Well, how old were you then? Um, I got that age right. Sorry, I was 25 when we set the business up and we exited when I was 27. Amazing. So That's super it was two and, a half, two and a half years when Forrester Research bought the business about six months before the dot-com boom crashed. And how did that go down? Was that you courting uh, you know, people to buy you? Did they court you? No, Forrester was one of two or three research firms who we were essentially modelling ourselves off and were becoming competitors to. Mm. And when Forrester reached out to say, can we have a chat? We're like, mm, yes. Interesting. I remember quite an interesting conversation, actually, because we ended up meeting quite quickly there, kind of head of strategy and corporate development. And he asked a very simple question, which is, what are your three priorities? And how did you get to a number? Is that just a basic, like, this is a multiple of revenue and there's, like, no negotiation? Do you remember negotiating on a number that you felt yeah. comfortable? Well... There are a couple of parts to that. So first of all, I mean, they were public companies and we were quite good at copying them. So, And we were certainly very familiar with their public material. What happened was, by coincidence, just at the point we were about to go and get into a serious meeting with them in Amsterdam, actually, we got an inbound call from a low-life banker trying to kind of say, can I help? And we were... That probably wasn't the first call we got like that, but it was one of them. We were like, mm, come and talk to us. And actually, by the time we decided to engage this guy, we'd actually come back from our meeting with Amsterdam and we had a indicative offer, which was expressed as a range. Mm. And the range was a number that would have been life-changing for us, even at the bottom end. And we then engaged the banker on the basis of, can you help us get it to the top of the range? And we managed to do that. Okay, interesting. And this uh, this low-life banker became a high-life banker quite quickly in your estimation. The low-life banker earned his fee and has remained somebody who certainly Neil does quite a lot of business with. Yeah. Um, he's he's very good at his his job. Unsurprising. Fair enough. And range of exit, something you're comfortable talking about or not? Um, so that deal was in the... Didn't, didn't quite make us kind of 10 million each, I would say. Uh, and although the pound-dollar number the pound dollar currency was um doing funny things compared to today and the deal was all in equity for us it was a public company so that wasn't too bad um we managed to avoid it having earnouts but then the stock we were taking which we couldn't immediately cash in how uh, long was your lock-in uh, we had a, th- a three-month lock-in and a 12-month lock-in okay. but the stock which we were taking proceeded very quickly to double which essentially means that um, my business partner and I started looking at it as if we were pretty much making the amount each that we thought mm. the bus- that we were making together. And then the dot-com crash hit and it was stock proceeded to halve. So, in fact, more than half. So um, how much one actually ended up getting out 
depended a bit on one's timing with the stock. And this was before entrepreneurs relief existed. So it was more taxable than um, in the modern world. So what was the deal with uh, why you started Love Film? Like how long how long did it take between your exit and um, joining this founding team uh, to create this big vision, which uh, for anyone that doesn't know is essentially what we now call Amazon Prime Video? So a couple of things happened. So first of all, as I'd sold the business to Forrester, as I said, there was no earnouts, but I was very happy working there, learning a lot. And I went to move to their European office in Amsterdam. And I ended up running a consumer research program across Europe. And that wasn't a terrible place to be. That The tech boom bubble burst. But actually, we were dealing largely with Fortune 500 clients, and consumer research was still valuable to them. So it wasn't a terrible place to be. But I left to get married um, to um, the American attitude to sort of holiday allowances and the sort of time one might need to get married properly didn't quite gel with me. So um, although we were on good terms, I, I, I kind of found myself coming back to the UK after getting married. And this was in 2002. And by this point, my business partner had stayed for us long and he'd gone to the US in Boston with the, where they were based. And I was sitting around in essentially the carnage of the dot-com boom where there wasn't much going on, wondering what I might do next, not doing a lot, following random, the equivalent of random invitations to do podcasts, but again, that didn't really happen about then. I was reflecting on the fact that although the tech industry seemed to be on its knees, there were two graphs that had been firmly moving upwards in my era. And of course, I suppose part of the success of my first business was that we'd clearly caught a wave. And, and I was like, where was the next wave? One was mobile phone adoption. And I thought, well, I can see that. Uh, but every man and their dog seems to be setting up mobile phone businesses, and I don't have an edge on mobile phone businesses. The other graph that was shooting up was, was DVD penetration. Now, probably your younger listeners don't know how to spell DVD, but uh, back then that was a new emerging technology. There's no need to because everyone's got AI assistance. And, um, that's true. Yeah, I suppose you can just shout out, uh, how do I spell D- DVD? And somebody will answer the question. I was starting to ask the question of people I knew, like, has anybody seen any interesting DVD businesses? And my old buddy Neil in Boston said, well, there's this company called Netflix. And Netflix had, at that point, this was 2002, had recently attempted to go public. So they had a equivalent of an S1 document. And Netflix had, had released a very helpful amount of information about how their business works and the strengths and minuses of it. And that looked very interesting. And I, my research business had been subscription-based. I like subscription. I'd got to know the Amazons, et cetera, of the world quite well and had always sort of half half fancied my chances to have built an Amazon if I'd just been slightly different time and place. And I thought, well, this is interesting. It's a sort of consumer, Amazon-like is not quite the right phrase, but, you know, consumer-facing e-commerce-y type business with a subscription business model catching a wave called DVDs. That looks very cool. What can possibly go wrong? As soon as you search for DVD rental UK, you'd realise that there is something that could go wrong, which is that there were four other guys out there ahead of me. And I never really believed in being a loser and I wasn't going to go after something I couldn't win on. So I I needed to find a strategy for winning. The other thing that was clear looking at the Netflix documents was it was a very capital consumptive business. And much as I was financially in a pretty independent place by this point, I certainly was keen not to jeopardise that. And I certainly couldn't have bankrolled the sort of numbers that Netflix was throwing at the market comfortably. So... I kind of knew I needed to find a strategy and I knew I needed to find some money. And then 
I didn't pursue that anything like full time, but I kind of kept asking the questions and networking. And eventually, somebody I met connected me to. He said, "I just." He rang me up after a meeting about something else, and he said, "I've just met this guy. You should talk to him." And I said, oh, "Yes, go on." He said, "Yes, he's a chap who runs. He's an entrepreneur, runs a bagel chain." And I'm like, "Go on." And uh, he said, well, "He's called Alex Chesterman." That was how I met Alex, and Alex had been was a sort of first time entrepreneur with a with a small bagel chain, which again he'd somewhat latched onto that idea by looking at stuff going on in the US and can we do that over here? That's bagel mania, right? Bagel mania, yeah. And um, it hadn't proven the success Alex was hoping, and he had latched onto the Netflix opportunity, and he he was going around trying to work out how to build that, but he didn't have the sort of tech profile and experience that would have. I think most investors would have seen it as an important and um and so the two are, but what he did have was a, a plausible answer to the question of how we're gonna win because he had a very strong commercial agreement in place with a with a key partner to get the product promoted in DVD players selling across the UK. In fact, a very high volume. A third of all the DVD players sold in the UK over the next two years were going to be able to get promotional material in it from thanks to this deal he'd done. So that was a deal that alone promised to get the business into a leadership position and break even and made it much easier to raise money. And we teamed up to go and do that together. And that's, that's how I got into Love Film. And we ended the market as essentially number five alongside the same week we we launched um Saul Klein launched the Video Island business and later there were more coming and actually what one of the things Saul did was try and um offer a white labeled opportunity to lots of other big brands so the next thing you know we had sort of Tesco entering the market with with that with Video Island Microsoft entering the market easy cinema trying to enter the market the Guardian. I mean, in the end, lots of brands did this. Luckily, most of them supported by, in the end, us, because we subsequently took over the Video Island business, took over the company that had been number one when we launched, which was DVDs on Tap. And they all became, what subsequently became known as Love Film, and that um, ended up sort of winning in the European market. So, so what was the strategy there? Was it, Did you have to do a massive fundraise to sort of say, look, we're just going to buy out everyone and build this, you know, empire together? And that's essentially the vision. It's a go hard or go home kind of thing. No, or? it wasn't the strategy originally. I mean, the original strategy was this this commercial deal is going to get us off onto the sunset and it's going to get us to, I think the numbers we were chasing, there were sort of 20,000 subscribers a year, um, which seems, seems tiny these days, but that was the biggest player when we joined the market, had 10,000 subscribers. Just, just for the benefit of our younger listeners, could you quickly just explain the business model? For yes. yes. Originally, people, obviously things like block, Blockbuster, <coughs> which people probably might not remember either, you went and rented, yes. you went to a shop and rented. Exactly. Film, so I think the this was back in the world where the, your choices about watching movies were essentially the pay TV, where you had a fairly limited choice of w- w- historically well-known movies, but not the latest things, or DVDs. And on DVDs, your choices were buying them from Tesco or the, you know, Walmart equivalents, essentially, um, or renting them. And you could rent them the same way you could have rented, hist- you know, parents would have rent- been able to rent videotapes. And you'd rent them typically for three or four pounds per night, plus these things which everybody hated called late fees, where if you return them late, you'd get stung for a surcharge. Blockbuster was the leader on the DVD rental model, but there were a bunch of independents. In fact, I go to Australia every so often, and there still are these kind of uh, independent DVD rental shops, which somehow the world hasn't quite... There's one, there's one in Houston. I was walking, it's a walk home now, and I can't begin to tell you the weird stuff that's 
Exactly. That, 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 may be, that may not be legal, some of that stuff, <laughs> <Yeah>. but uh, <laughs> certainly not for under, under 18. Literally, this is like last week, I was so shocked. It's like a DVD rental shop. What yeah, on it's probably, earth? I'm so, it's probably like vinyl. It's like for the hipsters. That it's want to go so back. weird. Anyway, sorry. And so we, and Netflix had cottoned on to, um, there's an opportunity to do this differently, and Netflix had pioneered a subscription in the post plan where you paid, paid essentially $20 plus tax a month, and you got, quote unquote, all you could eat movies. And we essentially replicated that model here. And our pricing was, for when we entered the market, the prevailing price point was nineteen ninety nine, including tax, a month. And we came in at about £15. And actually, by the time the business had really succeeded, the pricing was all under £10. And these days, it has all moved online through streaming. And But the pricing remains sort of 7 or £8 pounds a month. And the big difference is that the way Amazon and Netflix are winning or trying to win and beat each other now is by building their own content. And that wasn't really going on back in the world of DVD. No, DVD that's a crazy investment as well when you have to yeah. have uh, a lot of balls to even try it. Yes. Um, so, and they bought studios as well, so... Beg your pardon. As in they've been buying studios up, which is like Absolutely. totally different. And production strategy. facilities yeah, and all yeah. sorts of things, yes. So, But our original strategy was we're going to get 20,000 subs, <laughs> might be breaking even happy, happy days. And after the first few weeks when we, we literally thought the boat is arriving from China, that's going to turf out onto UK shores, all these millions of flyers which are going to go into DVD players and people are going to see this unbelievably compelling offer to take our DVD service and you know, we're just going to be inundated with customers. Um, and I think after the first month, we'd had my mum and you know, a couple of other people <laughs> sort of catch this and we're starting to scratch our head going, what's going on? And, and a couple of months later, we had maybe a couple of thousand customers, but we were not on plan. And we're like, this isn't good because we'd succeeded in raising a certain amount of money from friends and family and angels. And a certain amount you're comfortable talking about? So yeah, we'd raised just over a million pounds, um, which back then actually was quite a lot for an angel round. I've yeah, it's a lot for an angel round. It's not necessarily a lot of capital for a business like this. No, and we were aware of that. But we'd raised uh, 1.3 million, something like that. So we had enough funding for a little while, but we were trying to buy DVDs. We were trying to pay for marketing. We had a team of and some built a quite powerful website and technology and so on. So, And we needed a warehouse, which um, was also not, not your classic digital um, business asset. And... So if, after two or three months of scratching, I'm going, hmm, this is a rather slower burn than we'd wanted. What do we do about this? And we'd, because we'd met at this point some of our competitors, we knew one of them was getting a bit fed up and he was a bit unamused that I think he'd been the very first one to launch back in 2000. And he's a bit unamused that the market had grown to seven or eight players, some of whom had raised some quite serious cash. And he was starting to go, hmm. And so we decided to make him an offer to buy him out. Which was a very, it was a very small business. We didn't have to pay him a lot, but it, it essentially took a problem off his plate and gave us a bit more scale and sent a signal to everybody else that we were going to be the buyers, not the sellers. And that, and actually, it was soon after that deal closed that Saul's guys of New Island rang us up and said mm, we should talk because we and they just raised quite a lot of money, but I think they'd raised it and known as they were raising that actually they were. They were in danger of getting overtaken, and in fact, it, they had already been overtaken. But mm. they didn't. Uh, they didn't want to tell their investors that, and um, and so they were. They were. They bought into our strategy. We said we've got to get scale. We've got to consolidate our way to scale, and and we were the people to run the run the business. And that's and so that was the that was then the big deal that kind of made us the clear leader in the UK. And from there on, we we either picked people up when they went under, or we had quite a long negotiation to get hold of the DVDs on tap business, which was a pretty well-run business and didn't need a deal. Um, but we eventually acquired them. And then and then in the meantime, Amazon had launched a UK and German DVD rental service. And we 
that was not a good thing. Um, but um, by the time we'd clearly beaten them as well, they said, OK, 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 we don't really believe in owning a number two. We'd rather have a piece of the number one. And um, we took over their business and they became a minority shareholder of the company. So minority to what extent? We had something like 800,000 customers. They had about 300,000 customers. And so we combining, we took the business to just over a million uh, if I remember rightly, and this was in 2008. This is all in the UK. And of their 300,000, that was about 60% in the UK and about 40% in Germany. And in our world, Germany was tiny. So actually, they were way bigger than us in Germany, and we were way bigger than them in the UK. Mm-hmm. We also had a Nordics business with 50 or so, maybe 100,000 customers. So we gave them about a quarter of the business in exchange for that customer base, essentially. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Um, what's it like negotiating with Amazon? You know, you're obviously growing and they obviously want what you've got. So that's a great position to be in. And like you said, they don't want to be a number two. But from the outsider, I'd imagine not not the kind of people you want to be uh, stuck negotiating details with whilst you're trying to grow. I was a big admirer of Amazon when we were first setting up our TV business. And um, in fact, our lead investor was a chap I'd, I'd known before and called Simon Murdoch, who had been the... MD of the UK online bookseller that um, Amazon had bought to get into the UK. And he'd ended up running Amazon UK for a year or two. So he knew Amazon pretty well. And and he helped us find our CTO, who's a very talented guy called Simon Kane. 
uh, who had been at Amazon as there, essentially led their international development team, such as it was, for a few years. And we'd also hired a, a warehouse manager, was a very talented lady from Amazon as well. As well. So we, we, we had people in the business who knew Amazon quite well. And I remember getting asked by investors in investor presentations, like, what if, how, what's the competitive situation here? What would, how, how would you compete with people like Amazon? And I was like, I'm really not worried about Amazon competing with us for various reasons, which I thought were all quite logical. But anyway, it turns out I was blindingly wrong as hindsight came to show. But we, um, at some point, fairly early in our journey, but we were definitely up and running in the, the leader, we got in, invited to come and talk to Amazon uh, in their UK head office. Don't get me started about Luxembourg. But anyway, they were obviously interested in the space and they had a strategic point of view about the space. And I think the same way that they were looking at music and going, CDs are going onto MP3s and need a position on that. Video is going to go online, need a position in that. And they were looking at it. And we got pretty excited about this. And this was before we'd done the final kind of merger of our competitors. So one of the things we were worried about was if they were to acquire one of our rivals, that would be bad. Um, so we got quite interested in them and they came to have a look at our premises and, and so on. And then they, and we were worried that they might just be on a fishing expedition, but there wasn't a whole lot we could do about that. That's the kind of risk you run by letting a potential acquirer who's clearly interested in the space get involved. Um, but we still weren't too sure how serious and worried we'd be about that because for various reasons, it still thought rental DVDs was probably not a cool thing for them to do. Anyway, they eventually launched and... I think they'd they'd separately gone and had similar conversations with our rivals. So they'd really kind of been learning what they could. And they'd really, and I think with hindsight, the the prospect of them buying something was low. And the prospect of them just using that to learn how to compete with us was was really their agenda. I find it amazing, like hearing this. Like, how on earth did you and your co founders just go into the belly of the beast without just feeling so much anxiety about giving them the information they need? Because this is one of those hard parts, really, is, you know, the, one of the hardest parts for an entrepreneur is, is it an exit, is it an investment, is it a fishing expedition that will just end up coming to bite us on the arse? And there's not a lot of protection over those no, that you can possibly do. There isn't a lot of protection. And it, it it was a relatively familiar problem with us by the time I left the business because we'd bought so many other companies and we'd looked at buying even more. And, and it, most of those were direct rivals competing directly with us. And there you've got to work out, I need to see your, you know, it's very much a kind of kimono ex- opening exercise. I, you know, I'll show you mine if you show me yours type thing. And that's quite a nerve-wracking thing to do. Because if your deal doesn't come good, that you've probably shown them stuff you're competitively sensitive about and vice versa. I think at the end of the day, it's a good, it comes back to have you got a good business or not. And, and it, it, if you've got the sort of business where if somebody could saw what you were doing, they'd just copy you straight away and flatten you that's not good business. If you've got a business which has got genuine moats and barriers to entry and you know protections of various flavours and strong assets and loyal customers and powerful technology and so on and so forth, you can be pretty open about it because you're not hiding very much, you know. And um, you know the, the secret of something like Coca-Cola is not that secret. I mean, never mind the secret formula. At the end of the day, the success of Coca-Cola is extremely difficult to rival, as Pepsi and Virgin, God knows what, over the years have found. And you could probably give people almost unfettered access to their head office and or their warehouse or their manufacturing plants or whatever, and it wouldn't make any difference. It's a very strong business. And I think we had to have some level of conviction that 
you know, we were building something which was going to be difficult to compete with, which I think it was, and um, which is why Amazon ended up sometime later when they'd built their UK and German business, got them both to, let's call it, I said one to 200,000 customers, but kind of gone, hmm, one to 200,000 customers is not what we're aiming for. And, you know, in the meantime, these love film guys are soon going to have a million customers. That was when they went, look, we should talk, and we'd rather rather have a piece of the winner than own the own the also ran. Okay, and at this point, they've got a piece of the winner. You've grown to a certain point, and um, you know they've ended up buying you. Well, so what happened? Then, they ended up yeah. buying you eventually. Eventually, yeah, they're not but at this point. Obviously, there is a story amongst that detail. So take us through what happened. So we were we were on the one hand keen to be able to do a deal here because. They were quite a notable competitor to us, and they'd always create issues for an exit for us if Amazon's out there competing against us in the market. And I think we we were relatively up for acquiring their, their business. What we were worried about was giving them enough of a stake in the business that they could have blocking rights, because we had four or five key investors around. They were sophisticated VCs with quite a lot of experience, and we were dead set on making sure that these guys didn't have any um, undue veto rights or anything like that. So we negotiated on the basis that they um, they could have nearly a blocking right but not a blocking right. What they wanted was the option to be able to buy outright control of the business. So their point of view was, look, we are up for only owning minorities, but we need some ability to see a way, a path to potentially turning this into a controlling position. And we were essentially saying that that's tricky, or rather, you're going to have to be able to do that at arm's length, and we've got to, we can't be a forced seller to you. So, to be fair to them, which I'm not always, uh, they were um, very clear about the fact that they were kind of wanted as close as they could get to kind of a controlling option, and we ended up agreeing something which our lawyers told us was what we wanted. I, it prevented them from having a blocking right. What then happened was the global financial crisis hit. In fact, we did the, we closed the deal with Amazon. I'm going to say December '07 or something, and I think I left the business about six months later after integrating their UK and German businesses. And about a month or two after I left the business, the sky fell in. So the financial crisis had lots of ramifications, obviously, and in particular, it caused some financial distress for one of Love Films shareholders, and they started desperately trying to get. Liquid, some liquidity out of their position and that's actually been a quite a lesson for all of us because what the board said no 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 you know want the management team focused on growing the business not interested in secondaries not interested in liquidity quite a common refrain back then actually and actually what that investor did was well, I'm not sure I'm not sure quite who led the uh, evil act here but basically Amazon picked them off and and made them an offer and and bought some shares off them and in that process was a it sort of illustrated that actually it was going to be able to secure creeping control of the company because it was going and, and if for no other reason actually that even if that investor had sold to somebody else, Amazon had preemptive preemptive rights over any transaction. And the board wasn't able to block the transaction. So actually Amazon was able effectively to turn a twenty five percent non blocking stake into a blocking stake. So you suddenly got a partnership with an investor who basically just every single thing you're trying to do to maximise value to yourself and your own investors uh, is just blocking everything all the time in their own self-interest. Uh, like how on earth do those relations 
manifest uh, on a day by day? Does it not go from being like a good strategic partnership to just like a nightmare like situation with conflict all the time every time you guys are speaking? And, and also, was somebody from Amazon on the board as well? Yes, I mean, someone from Amazon on the board. Well, yeah, yes. it might be, right? Yeah. But- it yes, might, that must have been pretty interesting. Media. Yes. So, and look, I wasn't in the um, hot seat for some of those conversations, and um, but I mean that's quite difficult. I think I think the management of the business is relatively insulated from this squabble because this was essentially a shareholder shareholder squabble. Shareholder squabbles are not new, okay, and they're very common things. And actually, as a investor or as a as a entrepreneur, you've got to be mindful of that. And if you end up owning some bagel chain which you've never raised any money for, it's family. In fact, it's just family squabbles, and those are all easy, aren't they? Um, at the moment you get VCs involved, there are certain types of squabbles you should expect. But the moment you've then got strategic investors and different VCs and ones with maybe liquidity issues versus fresh funds, et cetera, you know, you, you end up with these situations. And, and one of the lessons I drew from that was I try and put this into practice if I get any influence on this in, in, in other things. You do need to look for opportunities to offer liquidity to shareholders, and you don't. You know, there, there is a bit of a sort of inevitable pressure valve that you know, starts to build up or pressure, pressure cooker with investors who've been, may have been in the business for quite a long time or may have their own circumstances where they need liquidity and need to find assets to sell, which is beholden on you as a kind of board to recognise and understand. And if you can't do that, you know, watch out for unintended consequences. Can you give us a little insight into how you actually built up Love Film from an operational point of view? Three or four minutes. <laughs> so, um, so at some level, Love Film was a very typical e-commerce website. So, it had a you know sign-up process, had a way for managing your accounts. A key part of the whole process was your rental list of movies you wanted to watch. So you could browse and search and explore that, just the same way you could on an Amazon or IMDb or something like that. On top of that, though, there was a whole fulfillment side because originally the business was DVD-based, so we had to own DVDs. It was a library business. We had to buy DVDs. We stored them all centrally. We got our big USB against the retail competitors was they had to have stock in hundreds of locations around the UK, and they could only have a few thousand SKUs. We had it in one warehouse. We had 60,000 SKUs, most of which we only owned one copy of. But that turns out to be enough to provide a a very, very powerful library and rental experience. And then we were, every day, we're getting back in the post. The DVDs are being returned by subscribers to be exchanged for fresh DVDs. And we then are opening envelopes, getting the DVDs out of them. Most of the popular DVDs are going to go straight out again, actually, in what's sort of often called a cross dock type process. And and we're then, but we're essentially by the end of the day, we've found the fresh set of DVDs for all the subscribers, put them in envelopes, posted them, and any DVDs that haven't been required by that day's dispatches go back on the shelves. And that process is more ma- was in our case was more manual than you might think. Although there was a lot of technology assisting it, and it was a, it was a pretty sophisticated warehouse management system um, with a. You know, which is all technology we built ourselves, and it all ran out of one one location, what one might subsequently call a single point of failure. But uh, hadn't thought about it quite that way. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I mean, the, so one of the most traumatic business experiences of my life was on the 1st of September 2004. When, well, you remember the date, so definitely trauma. <laughs> uh, when uh, I got a phone call from about 9.30pm at night, it was dark, and my um, warehouse manager said, William, there's a fire at the warehouse. I'm heading over there now. And I got there about 25 minutes later and could see the fire engines there. And it, and they were it was clear that they were they had a very uphill battle, to put it mildly. Where, where was the warehouse? And the warehouse was in Park Royal, which is an industrial estate on the west of London. The biggest industrial estate in Europe, actually. It's quite well suited to warehouse-type operations. And um, I remember... Alex was on his way at this point, and I remember talking to him on the phone. He said, is the fire engine there? I said, yes. And he said, uh, oh, so it's out then. And I said, no. And if you've ever, you know, pardon the vernacular, but sort of imagine pissing onto a bonfire. You, know, you, don't, you don't do much to it. And uh, that, was, that was what these, the fire engines had a massive hose, massive amount of stuff, enormous quantity of water going on, but, you know, it was a big fire. So, and actually it turned out there had been asbestos in the building. So even after the smoke cleared, literally, we weren't allowed back in that building without like full-on kind of hazmat-type outfits uh, and strict controls for about six months. And that was our single depot with all of our stock in it. And most all our... Thankfully, we had just moved our head office facilities out of that building across the road without... I think the business would have failed. But... um, we really moved into panic stations and we had, I think, two pieces. Normally this warehouse would, would have had like 50 staff, all of them with barcode scanners and terminals and things. And we managed to assemble two terminals uh, the next morning. Um, and actually the end up, the disruption that we managed to, con- the customer's experience was very contained. I think we we, we, managed, we had one day where we couldn't ship any DVDs and the next day after we shipped something like 60% of our target wow, volumes. That's yeah, that's lucky, but, but it was, as well, It was right? partly luck. It was partly incredible talent on the part of my, my our warehouse manager and her team. And the some of our key tech guys were incredibly, incredibly good problem solvers. And for new members coming into the Love Film teams, did you be like, wait, day one, we're watching Backdraft? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's given me something of a phobia about fires ever since. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, it's hard to appreciate quite you know, how on the edge you can be of a total meltdown, if you'll pardon the pun. So moving on from Love Film, because you've got such a long uh, career history of different things you've done, and we focus so heavily on that. But I think it's, you know, such a pivotal story and also obviously has become such a major platform for people. I wanted to just touch, I mean, in my mind, the way that I think of you as the subscription king. Um, everything, I, I mean, I say everything, I mean, until good Lord, but most of the things that I relate to you are like subscription businesses, um, Secret Escapes, Greys, obviously, Hubbub. Um, what is it about those? Did you sort of just find the right business model and think, you know, this is just absolutely where I can become better than anyone else at? Is that something that drives you that's led you to those decisions? I think, so the original attractiveness of the research um, industry was because it had subscriptions, and I and I learned quite uh, when I was at McKinsey just how um, powerful that business model is. Um, I think what's happened in the world of e-commerce is all sensible e-commerce businesses may not be subscription businesses, but they're cohort-based businesses, and all a subscription is really is a is a particularly predictable form of cohort, often with a contractual guarantee to it because companies signed agreement to be a customer for the next 12 months or whatever it is and I think that I was relatively right place right time by 
by wanting to get into subscription, understanding subscription in the 90s has left me well positioned as e-commerce has become cohort based. I mean, we had we had some, with hindsight, hilarious arguments at Love Film about how to measure churn properly because we hadn't actually quite worked out the science of measuring cohorts. And these days, like every startup deck I see has got a kind of cohort analysis in it. And like that was that was that is just a well-known technique now. But even back at Love Film, it was we were figuring out for the first time. Um, but one of the things I've learned in the last few years is you don't need a subscription to have very strong cohorts. Um, and actually, for example, I did some work in the grocery space. And actually, the kind of groceries that people like Ocado, the, the cohorts people like Ocado have in groceries are some of the best cohorts you'll ever see. But there's no subscription as such to them, really, or maybe a little, little bit with some around the edges. But it's really you're just looking for predictable behavior. And you don't need a subscription to create predictable behavior. And then uh, I guess a really interesting one to talk about briefly is Grays. I mean, that has become such a uh, a brilliant business. I mean, it was a brilliant business back in the day because they introduced so much of uh, of, of modern consumer behaviour and the subscription model. The key instigator at Grays was um, one of the founders of one of the businesses that, that we'd taken over at La Film. And he'd ended up specialising in the fulfilment technology, the, the kind of warehouse system, and he was extremely good at that. And he'd built, helped build some incredible technology for that. He was therefore he had a sort of ringside seat when the Royal Mail, the UK's largest um, postal distributor, completely restructured their pricing model, and that made certain things that did cost a lot of money a lot cheaper to send, and some things that were cheap expensive to send. And he realised that actually the, the kind of logical consequence of that repricing was actually to let you send practically liquids in the post. That was his kind of thinking. And from that, he got to maybe we could send food in the post. Who does that? And from that, he kind of had this idea of we could send snacks. And we were based in Park Royal, this industrial estate in West London, where the food options were not good. And his thinking really was, if I sent high quality snacks to people in places like this, I think I've got a business. <laughs> and he... He asked me to help him, and I got involved really as a on the board and helping helping the business get structured and finding investors for it. But the effectively it was his original model, and the, the we knew he was talented. We knew we had money. We knew the food market was a big market. The thing we didn't know was is this a bit, is this a thing? Can you do? Will people eat snacks that come in the post? And the what's the answer? The viral side of it was a bit of an unexpected bonus. Actually, we probably didn't. Um, we were quick to capitalise on that when we saw that going on, but we didn't see that as part of the original concept. But the um, in lots of ways, I mean, Gray's was is one of those businesses. I don't recommend building businesses this way because it wasn't based on kind of c- consumer pain. If you said to consumers, "Are you lacking snacks?" No. If you said to them, "Do you fancy healthier snacks?" It would say yes. But there were healthy snacks you could find in the supermarkets. Whatever healthy it's like snacks. Like the Henry Ford horse and car model of yes. the snack industry. It is, yeah. and the the thing that Graham was tried to do was just map everything he liked about Love Film onto snacking. And one of the things that was a bit of a hidden, it was one of the hidden sort of secret sources of Love Film was the concept that you couldn't choose exactly what movie you wanted to rent. Okay, this this has changed in the world of streaming, but in the world of DVDs, you built a list of things you wanted to watch, and then we chose the thing we sent you, and that gave us enormous business advantages that weren't entirely clear to the consumer and didn't really compromise the consumer's experience. And he was very keen to do that on snacking. So he's like, there's massive advantages to not letting the consumer choose exactly what they want. Um, and, you know, if the price of cherries doubles, you just sort of stop sending people things with cherries and, and that sort of thing. It also means you have no waste because 
this final batch of cherry things. I'm going to send these. I don't, don't really care who gets them, but they're not going to stay in my warehouse. So um, he had sort of mapped on, we're going to do subscription. We're going to do what we call preference, not choice, which means we choose, not consumer chooses. And we're going to send it through the post. It has to fit through letterbox. has to therefore be no more than 25 mils thick. What about apples? We'll find a way to do apples, but that means that apples are going to have to change. Right, that was that was the sort of mindset, and because you know we had a hammer, we wanted snacking to look like a nail. But preference, not choice, is actually how you were able to do the only having one version, one one film and the DVDs in your entire warehouse. Yes, precisely because you couldn't have. We just could make sure that if two people wanted to see the same movie on the same night, they couldn't. William, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you very much for coming in to uh, actually letting us into your boat, more specifically here in Soho. Uh, thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed being on uh, the SS Secret. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, hope, I hope the secret's safe with you. It is. Thank you very much. Next week on Secret Leaders. If you have decided you're going to leave one thing and go to another thing, choose the thing that you're not entirely certain you can do. Don't do the things that you know you can do because you won't be learning and you won't be that motivated because it might not be that hard. That was Sherry Kutu, CBE, the founder of Founders for Schools, which brings founders and leaders into schools to inspire kids and make them realise there's other career opportunities that go beyond just accountancy, legal or medical professions. Sound familiar? She's also one of the most successful angel investors in the UK and brings a wealth of experience in spotting winners into our conversation. So if you want to know how she picks a winner, then you're going to have to tune in or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders One on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.